Hello, my glorious fellow sovereigns, and welcome back to another guest episode of The Princess and the Bee. I am so excited to be here with you today with my guest, Makiko Hirata. Makiko is an international pianist and recording artist, also known as Dr. Pianist, on, who is on a mission to promote music and musicians as healing agents in this world. She has been a consultant to the Houston Methodist Hospital Center for Performing Arts Medicine. She collaborates with neuroscientists to quantify the benefit of music. She writes, gives lecture concerts, and facilitates workshops on biomusicology and its power to encourage empathy, reminding us how and what we share is greater than our differences. She is a U.S.-Japan Leadership Program Fellow, and Dr. Hirata has given recitals, lectures, concerto performances, and outreach concerts in the Americas, Europe, and her native Japan with ensembles and artists such as the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra, the Pex Hungarian Symphony Orchestra, conductor Leon Fleischer, and clarinetist David Krakauer. Passionate about sharing music not just through performances, she is also taught at New York University, Colborne Conservatory of Music, Rice University, and Lone Star College, and given masterclasses and lectures internationally. And on a personal note, I met Dr. Hirata through the Elevate membership that I am blessed to be a member of, where she was giving a lecture on neuroscience and music. And as a total nerd and personal development junkie for neuroscience and mindset performance, I couldn't help myself and I jumped in. And not only was the the lecture experiential because we got to not just listen to the words that Dr. Hirata was saying about music and, and all the glorious information that you're going to get today in this episode, but also to hear it and feel it. If you want to sit back and have a cup of coffee and just enjoy this episode, we are going to be diving into the physical effects of music and beats on our bodies, why music is communal and a healing experience, and how to actually cultivate that community even in times of separation like during this pandemic. Because we as humans have a need to synchronize our biorhythms with music and that ability to connect is huge for developing empathy. And you're, we're going to dive into how noise and music in particular affects our physical vibration. Like anytime you're listening to something, it's there is vibration in sound. And it's affecting your vibration. And as I know, we all are high vibe high performers aiming to stay in that high vibe space, understanding how music can play an integral part in that vibration that we're holding on a regular basis and to be able to release the negative vibrations that we have as well. Music can be so powerful and that's why I'm so excited to have Makiko on this podcast and just sit back, enjoy the knowledge. It is it, this, there are so many writer downers in this. There are so many 
little tidbits. And if you're a total personal development junkie and neuroscience geek like me, like you are going to totally eat up this episode. So as always, please screenshot this episode and share it on your Insta stories. I love hearing and seeing what your takeaways are from each single one of the guests that I am blessed to interview and bring on here. With that being said, I bring you Makiko Harata, Dr. Pianist. Welcome to the Princess and the Bee podcast, the place to be to build your empire as queen of your body, business, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm an award-winning coach, Amazon best-selling author, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. Each week, I give you the systems, strategies, and success stories to help you master your mindset, communicate with ease, and triple your productivity so you make the income and the impact you deserve. Imagine this podcast as your weekly spark of inspiration as you take it to the next level with all the bees of your life, body, business, bank account, boys and babies. Let's make it rain. Hello, hello, and welcome back, my fellow sovereigns. I am so excited to have you be here today with me on The Princess and the Bee because I have an extraordinary guest whose bee falls into the language of brains. And I mean, I, do, I wish I knew how music started with a bee, but we have Dr. Pianist Makiko Harata. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kim. It's great to be here. So Makiko, I have to ask, how did you get the title Dr. Pianist? So I do have a doctorate in music. Um, and it was very hard earned. <laughs> so it's something that I'm very, very proud of. But I also, um, I call myself Dr. Pianist because I want to remind pianists, other pianists and musicians like myself and really overall artists that we are healers in the world. We are not just at the mercy of the consumerism. We're not just entertainers. We actually have the power to really influence the world in a very positive, loving way. Um, and traditionally, healers have used music and arts to heal people. And we have to reevaluate our power um, that we possess. So that's why I call myself Dr. Pianist. I'm not an MD. I am a musical doctor, but <laughs> I am not a medical doctor. <laughs> but still, I mean, you that hard-earned PhD, was it was hard-earned. It's not a PhD. People often make that mistake. It's not a okay. very well-known degree. It's a DMA, Doctor in Musical Arts. So its primary focus is on um, performance, but, um, and it's somewhat loosely defined. So depending on which school you go to, it's less academic, but I went to Rice University where the academic discipline is rigorously enforced. And I had to write a 200 somewhat pages thesis, uh, which I'm very, very proud of <laughs> on the genesis of memorization and, and blah, 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 all that. So, yes. So what was it that, that drew you first to music and when did you connect with music as a healing tool? So I'm writing a book on this right now and I can talk more about that later. Yes, but please. Um, the, the simple short answer that I can give to that question 
is, so I was born in Japan, but uh, my family relocated to Hong Kong when I was one year, one, one years old. And so in Hong Kong, my parents spoke to me in Japanese, my nanny spoke to me in Cantonese, and my kindergarten was in English. So apparently, I don't remember this, but apparently when I started speaking, um, I would know one word in English, another word in Cantonese, so on and so forth. And so I could not easily make friends. And that made me uh, withdrawn and kind of antisocial. And there happened to be a piano at our, uh, uh, rental apartment and I started picking out tunes on it and my mom anticipating more international relocations she told me that music was a universal language which means that if I were to play the piano very well it doesn't matter if I can speak very well I would make friends everywhere in the world and it sounded good to me so that's how I started um, I started taking lessons when I was three I, there are recordings of myself before the lesson you know playing songs I know and accompanying myself to songs singing and you know things like that uh, you can watch that on YouTube <laughs> I have a little clip. oh really <laughs> yeah my son is three and he's he loves to accompany himself playing ABCs on his little tiny keyboard. It's totally entirely off key, but it's adorable. Or at least I think it is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so interesting because, you know, you watch children and some are really drawn to music and some couldn't care less. You know, it's so interesting, even babies. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so speaking of babies, I, I was blessed to hear uh, Makiko speak on the neuroscience of music. And one of the things that really caught my attention, especially as a mom with a toddler, and I remember the newborn phase, is what you said about babies and, and monkeys and why our auditory processing is actually so much more uh, uh, acute Yes. than our than our visual yes. and I'm, I would love to hear, have you explain a little bit more about about that and the baby's monkeys sure, <laughs> sure of course <laughs> no this is something that I love to talk about because I find it just fascinating but it also actually makes sense like it, we know this empirically so you know you know how babies mimic vocal inflections from very, very early on, right? And before they can even remotely understand the concept of language, they know to communicate through the inflections of pitches. Now, um, it may even start with babies crying. You know, mothers claim to know, you know, they cry differently if they're hungry or if their diapers are wet or if they're upset about something, right? So there may be some basis to this. And there's this primatologist, a Japanese primatologist. He says that, um, okay, so monkey babies don't cry because they don't have the need to cry. They are born much lighter in relation to their mothers and they have much more muscles than human babies do. So they can actually hang onto their mothers and mothers, monkey mothers can easily carry their monkey babies around 24 seven, tend to all of their knees. So monkey babies don't have the need to cry to call attention to themselves. 
whereas human babies, which are born much, much heavier in relation to their mothers, and they practically have no muscles. So they cannot hang on to the mothers themselves. And the mothers, the babies being too heavy, they cannot carry the babies around all the time, which means that human babies are designed to be raised communally by whoever happens to be around the baby when the baby has a need right that's why human babies cry to call attention to themselves now human babies apparently are equipped with more ability acute ability to decipher the pitches of the vocal inflections to tell apart a prospective caretaker from an enemy, right? A threatening situation. And that's why um, human babies apparently are more attuned to their auditory senses than monkey babies are. I find that really kind of inspiring. <laughs> and also there was something that you said that I, it, it was like a duh moment for me, but our eyes, like when we sleep, we shut our eyes, but our ears are always open. And there is a what is the difference in in the in the processing? It's it's a lot faster for sound waves to hit our brain than it is for light. Right. So you know, lights travel much faster than sound. We all know this, but it doesn't matter because once the the light reaches our eyes, um, and once the sound wave hits our eardrums, um, when we look at how quickly the brain. Um, sort of recognizes these stimuli. So it takes our brain about 0 0.02 seconds, 0 0.025 seconds, sorry. It takes our brains about 0 0.025 seconds to process sounds as opposed to visual input, which takes about 0 0.2 seconds. So about a tenth of that time um, is what our auditory stimulus uh, needs to be processed. That's because our brain wiring is so much more simpler because the sound is how we may save ourselves from a life-threatening situation. So like you said, Kim, um, our eyes close, we blink, we go to sleep, blah, blah, blah. But our ears, even when we are asleep, are really, really alert. So if, and it's also 360 degrees, it's surround sound, right? Um, so you don't have to be facing in the direction of the threat in order to detect it. So that's why our brain processing has to be quick. And also it needs to skip our prefrontal cortex which is the part of our brain that has to do with logic and reason and all of this, because we can't afford that time to think about what it is that we're hearing, right? So we react to sound before we think about it. We literally turn to the, the source of the sound before we know we're doing it, right? Um, and yeah, so that's why auditory information is so much more emotionally processed than visual information. And that's why music is so much more powerful than something that we see through our eyes. Oh, I, I love that. Have you done any studies into um, 
the representational systems. So in NLP, we have the, uh, there, there's four representational systems in the way that we process information. There's auditory, kinesthetic, visual, and auditory digital, where, where it's basically things have to make sense and it's our internal processing. For me, I'm highly externally kinesthetic. My husband is very highly AD. And so when my, when our son would cry as a baby, like it would immediately like hit me and the sound would affect me and sounds of people's voices affect me a lot faster than they do him because um, of the way he processes and experiences the world. Have you noticed that different personalities or different people who experience the world through their, a different representational system experience sound um, more more kinesthetically? Yeah, I, I do notice that. I do notice, notice that very much. And, you know, it like we have a very different styles of um, taking the world around us in, right? But it's also um, the neuroplasticity is also a fascinating thing. So, you know, somebody who is very, very visual, if he or she happens to lose their vision, even temporarily, you know, we can quickly rewire so that we become more kinesthetic or we be become more auditory, right? Um, so we always have the potential to change. And I don't know actually how much of our tendencies to rely on one sense or the other is um, nature or nurture, you know? I don't mm. know if it's our environment. Like, for example, I know that I am very, very attuned to my sense of hearing. Um, like I think of, a, I think of a person and I think of that person's voice before I can think of how that person looks. And I don't know how much of that has to do with um, the fact that I was very nearsighted from early on. I, I started wearing glasses when I was in my first grade and it's genetic. Both of my parents wear glasses and all these things, right? And so I don't know how much of that has to do with that as opposed to like, is it something that I'm born with? That I don't know. But yes, we, we, we all have very different ways of processing the world around us. It's great. Diversity. <laughs> I love the diversity. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because at our gym, like they play this very, at certain times when I don't choose not to go, ideally, um, they play this very loud sort of like trap music with a heavy, heavy beat. And it just, it like, it, it jars my body. It's not my style of music and it's very jarring to me so that it's so loud that it's counter- it's kind of like fighting with the music that I have in my headphones and it physically, it physically feels like it's affecting me because I'm highly, highly kinesthetic. And so the, the sound waves, the way that they hit, that they are hitting my body, it's like actually physically abrasive to me, <laughs> to certain types of music when it's played really, really loud. And I, when it, I so know what you mean. I, you know, so, um, WHO, the World Health Organization, in conjunction with other institutions around the world, has initiated this uh, program called uh, Safe Listening. You can look it up on Google very easily. And it is to alert people to the harm that really loud noises can do, not only to your hearing, but to your mental health and overall health. So really loud noise where your chest cave is resonating. Like 
like you can feel the vibration like you're describing you know it induces adrenaline um and it's very stressful uh, you know we may mistake the adrenaline rush as an excitement and all these things and and don't 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 get me wrong having music when you're exercising is effective you can exercise with less oxygen you have more tolerance for things you know you can push yourself harder having music when you're exercising is good just not at that volume i think I, let me ask you are you talking about an american gym or i know you're in australia right now right? yeah um so it's no it's it's not like um aboriginal music uh, is that is that what you're referring to no because i was made aware recently that americans are less um aware of the harm that really loud noises can do like in europe people are more conscientious of the noise level whereas in america you know we don't really pay attention to that and i do notice that like i love doing like zumba and things like that it's just that i can't do it at the gym because they play the music so loud <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, I there's, sorry, okay. I wasn't sure if it would be the same in like, for example, Australia at the, the gyms, like, you know. Yeah, it's at certain times with, with depending upon who's behind the desk. So sometimes it's a little bit more turned down and sometimes it's, it's turned up a bit louder, it tends to be louder in the afternoons. Um, but that's, that's why I go in the morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Typically, yeah. I mean, I go in the morning anyways, but uh, yeah, I found that the music is louder in the afternoons. And I'm not, I think it, that might be the person who's behind the desk because yeah. I remember like when my husband and I were like, is this the music that's on all the time? <laughs> Cause it just, it's not, it's a, it's not our style. Um, that like really loud, um, uh, trap style of rap. Um, and, and, B, it's so loud that you can't even hear your own music. So you're, you're turning up your own music to try to drown it out. And it's then you're blowing out your own earbuds, um, which is not good either. Is there any form of exercise that you know of or any form of music that actually is healing to um, our earbuds? Oh, okay. Um, I don't know, actually. So hearing... Hearing is a very sort of complicated mechanism, our ears. So once a lot of the damage that can be done by loud noises is not recoverable, right? Um, so once our eardrums are really, really stretched, they stay that way. Once we lose the um, the hair, the very, very tiny microscopic hair that's in our ears in order for us to be able to sense the sound when that's gone by loud loud noises they don't regrow so a lot of the um hearing damages that we get from loud noises especially like after a long period of exposure it's not um it's permanent i'm afraid so i don't know if there is a sound that can sort of heal uh the sense of hearing but I do know that we can teach ourselves to be more sensitive to what we hear. Um, you know, for example, like when you listen to a chime that's resonant for a long, long time, that's ringing for a long, long time, and we train ourselves to pay attention to the, the decay of the sound. Sometimes it can keep on ringing for about a minute and it gets fainter and fainter, right? But you just, 
fix your attention on that sound decaying and your ears sort of clear itself, your mind as well, you know, it's very meditative. So what, what styles of music, I mean, a, a decreasing the sound of a chime, is, are there certain styles of music that are more conducive for, for creating greater healing in the body? Or is, is, and are there other styles of music that are a bit more, and that, that can stimulate anxiety or stress, or like you said, the buildup of, of uh, cortisol and adrenaline? Sure. So, okay. So in general, the musical beats, right? Um, in most world music, any, any type of music, the musical beats are based on our heartbeats and also the speed of our footsteps, right? They're about the same, both of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so usually the musical beats are about Mm, 60 to 79 or something in between that per minute faster the musical beats are like if it was faster than your heartbeat then it tends to increase your heartbeats and it tends to increase your blood pressure blah 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 and so it gets you more excited and if it's too fast then it, it can be adrenaline inducing um, and it's slower than that and so it calms you down it makes you breathe slower it, it reduces your heart rate it reduces your blood pressure so if relaxation is what you're looking for and and healing i suppose um, then you would want something with a slower or a musical beat than your heart rate you know so music listening to music together synchronizes our heart rates our brain waves and our breathing to that of the music musical phrase musical beat everything um and so you know just if you want to slow down listen to slow and calm and quiet music so when like is it good to always be listening to music if to allow for that versatility um throughout the day or are periods of silence real uh important as well so i think it's like anything i like to draw analogy between music and food all the time right so food can be nurturing and it can be healing and it can be all these great things right but even healthy food if you're eating non-stop all day long <laughs> it's bad for you <laughs> just chowing down on celery <laughs> you know so digestion takes a lot of energy likewise you know sound input even if it was really calming nice music you know it it's taxing on the brain the brain is exhorting energy in order to process that sound information and so like really really music is like food <laughs> don't be eating all the time <laughs> i love that analogy because there are times when i feel like music like enlivens me. And then there are times when I want to work and I'm like, there. if I have music on in the background or radio, like my husband, when we first started dating, he used to work with, um, with like iHeartRadio just kind of playing in the background. And I was like, I love you. I can't, <laughs> I can't work in the same room as you because he's just, he just doesn't process it. Like 
he processes auditorially, but it just, he liked something in the background kind of there. I don't, I like, I like silence. And now he works a lot more with silence or he works with, uh, he, he can work with our son in the room. I can't um because just because the sounds that he makes they they immediately pull me out of a focus 